Our first reading this morning comes from Ezekiel chapter 34. I'll be reading from verse 1. The word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel. Prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Woe to you, shepherds of Israel, who only take care of yourselves. Should not shepherds take care of the flock? You eat the curds, clothe yourselves in the wool and slaughter the choice animals, but you do not take care of the flock. You have not strengthened the weak or healed the sick or bound up the injured. You have not brought back the strays or searched for the lost. You have ruled them harshly and brutally. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And when they were scattered, they became food for all the wild animals. My sheep wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. They were scattered over the whole earth, and no one searched or looked for them. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, because my flock lacks a shepherd, and so has been plundered and has become food for all the wild animals. And because my shepherds did not search for my flock, but cared for themselves rather than for my flock. Therefore, you shepherds, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I am against the shepherds and will hold them accountable for my flock. I will remove them from tending the flock so that the shepherds can no longer feed themselves. I will rescue my flock from their mouths and it will no longer be food for them. We'll now read from Matthew, chapter 14, beginning at the first one. At that time, Herod the Tetrarch heard the reports about Jesus, and he said to his attendants, This is John the Baptist. He is risen from the dead. That is why miraculous powers are at work in him. Now Herod had arrested Jesus and bound him and put him in prison because of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for John had been saying to him, it is not lawful for you to have her. Herod wanted to kill John, but he was afraid of the people because they considered John a prophet. On Herod's birthday, the daughter of Herodias danced for the guests and pleased Herod so much that he promised with an oath to give her whatever whatever she asked. Prompted by her mother, she said, Give me here on a platter the head of John the Baptist. The king was distressed, but because of his oaths and his dinner guests, he ordered that her request be granted and had John beheaded in the prison. His head was brought in on a platter and given to the girl who carried it to her mother. John's disciples came and took his body and buried it. Then they went and told Jesus. When Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, This is a remote place and it's already getting late. Send the crowds away so that they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. Jesus replied, 
They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. Bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. Taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the people. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up twelve basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The number of those who ate was about five thousand men, besides women and children. Immediately Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go on ahead of him to the other side while he dismissed the crowds. After he had dismissed them, he went up on a mountainside by himself to pray. Later that night, he was there alone, and the boat was already a considerable distance from land, buffeted by the waves because the wind was against it. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and cried out in fear. But Jesus immediately said to them, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Lord, if it's you, Peter replied, tell me to come to you on the water. Come, he said. Then Peter got down out of the boat, walked on the water and came toward Jesus. But when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You have little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? And when they climbed into the boat, the wind died down. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. When they had crossed over, they landed at Gennesaret. And when the men of that place recognized Jesus, they sent word to all the surrounding country, People brought all their sick to him and begged him to let the sick just touch the edge of his cloak and all who touched it were healed. Apparently the um, great and terrible leader Napoleon Bonaparte, he once said, Alexander, Caesar, Charlemagne and myself founded empires. But upon what did we rest the creation of our genius? Upon force. Jesus Christ alone founded his empire upon love, and at this hour millions of men would die for him. There are quite a number of quotes like this which apparently come from Napoleon. He seems to have been struck by the difference between Jesus and rulers like himself. He was struck by the ongoing success of Jesus' empire compared to the really temporary success of empires like his own. Apparently, he said about Jesus, his gospel, his empire, his march across the ages and the realms, everything is for me a prodigy, a mystery insoluble which plunges me into a reverie from which I cannot escape, a mystery which is before my eyes there, a mystery which I can neither deny nor explain. It really is remarkable when you think about it, the impact that Jesus has made on this world. In our culture, we, we tend to 
miss just how remarkable it is because we're, we're told that Christianity is declining and we accept this blindly and we assume that it's true everywhere. And so we can miss that Jesus' empire is doing exactly what he said it would do. It's growing and it's growing and it's filling this world. Today there are two and a half billion followers of Jesus. That, that's a third of the world who has been reached by Jesus' empire and it's still growing. The, the impact of Jesus is absolutely amazing. And it's especially amazing when you consider how things were looking at the beginning when Jesus was just starting out. We've been looking at, at Matthew's record of Jesus' ministry and in the beginning it doesn't look much like Jesus' empire is marching across the ages and the realms like Napoleon said. In the beginning it looks like the opposite. In some ways it looks like Jesus is failing. In chapter 11, Jesus laments that all the towns that have seen his miracles, including his, his home base in Capernaum, they haven't responded to his message. They've been pretty indifferent to him. In the next chapter, in, in chapter 12, verse 14, the religious leaders, the ones who should be enthusiastic, the Pharisees, they aren't won over by him either. In fact, they're plotting to kill him. They see his miracles and they, they can't deny them. So instead, they accuse him of being empowered by the devil. And at the end of chapter 13, even his own hometown where he, he grew up, they see his miracles, they hear his teaching, but they don't join him because they find him just too ordinary, too ordinary to be a king worth following. They know his mum, they know his brothers and sisters, they're offended by him. At this point in, in Matthew's record of Jesus' life, we should be thinking, what's going on here? Is Jesus failing? And, and that's what chapter 13 which you guys saw last week while I was at, at Hill Street, that's what chapter 13 is all about. Chapter 13 is all about Jesus explaining how his kingdom will grow, how it will march across the ages and the realms. Chapter 13, it's a, it's a bit like a manifesto. It's a bit like a public declaration of what Jesus' kingdom will look like in this world. Did you get that from last week? See, I wouldn't blame you if you missed it, because it's a pretty strange manifesto. What kind of manifesto goes like this? The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. What are you supposed to do with that? On its own, it, it doesn't mean much. It's, it's a pretty strange manifesto. And even Jesus' closest followers, they find it strange. In Matthew 13, 10, they ask Jesus, why do you speak to the people in parables? And Jesus says to them, because the knowledge of the secrets of the kingdom of heaven has been given to you, but not to them. Do you understand what this means? It means Jesus, he's been giving them a veiled manifesto. He's been giving, he's been giving them an explanation of, of how his kingdom will work, but it needs to be decoded. And he's saying to understand how his kingdom will work, they need the key to unlock it. They need the, the secrets of the kingdom given to them. To understand the kingdom, they need him. It's their closeness to him that matters. 
It's their closeness to him that matters both to understand the kingdom and to be a part of it. The world will miss it, he's saying. The crowds will miss it. The Pharisees will miss it. And that's the point. It's only those who come to Jesus who understand the kingdom and will be a part of it. And that's because the kingdom of heaven is all about him. The king of the kingdom. Now that's what Jesus starts to explain in, in chapter 13. That's, that's what you would have seen last week. But today, we see Jesus not just explain it, we see him demonstrate it. Today, we see the veil of, of the manifesto lifted completely just for a few moments. We see that the secret of the kingdom of heaven is Jesus himself and the kind of king that he is. He's not failing. He's showing a small group of close followers who he really is so they can take his kingdom to the world as they show the world the kind of king that Jesus is. And to start with today, we see this actually by seeing the kind of king that Jesus is not. To start with, we see that Jesus is not like the self-seeking kings of this world. Chapter 14, you, you would have heard, just read then, it starts with a bit of a backstory that, that explains why Jesus withdraws. We get a, a backstory on King Herod, who also misunderstands Jesus. King Herod, he hears about the amazing things that Jesus is doing, and he thinks Jesus is somehow a dead prophet come back to haunt him. And this is just such a completely bizarre conclusion that we get a bit of the backstory to, to see how Herod is so unhinged. Basically, Herod has been living as the stereotypical self-seeking leader that we find all too often in this world. You know, like his father before him, also called Herod, he rules by force and brutality. And he's taken his brother's wife, he's, he's married his sister-in-law, and the prophet John the Baptist, he said to him, that's not on. And so Herod's done the logical thing and put him in prison. But then he has this weird kind of drunken birthday party where his stepdaughter dances for them. And it's hard to know what on earth is going on, but Herod promises to give her whatever she wants. It all sounds pretty sordid and unsavory. And so Herod's wife tells her daughter to ask for John the, head, John the Baptist's head on a platter because she really didn't like him criticizing them. Now, can I just say at this point, if you ever feel like a bad parent, just let the example of Herodias comfort you for a second. Have you ever asked your kids to serve up a prophet of God's head on a plate? No? Hey, you're doing all right. This is crazy stuff. That's what we're supposed to get from this. And so you would expect King Herod, you know, to cop the embarrassment at this point and to say to his stepdaughter, look, you might be great at hip-hop, but what you're asking for is psycho and it's not going to happen. But Herod doesn't do that. He's too afraid to lose face in front of his guests and so he adds to his long list of brutality and self selfishness the murder of God's prophet. Now, Herod is just the most extreme example of a bad king, but he illustrates here where all human kings are vulnerable. All human kings and leaders 
tends to be self-seeking. Sex, money, power. When human kings and leaders can get away with doing what they want with these things, what happens? Well, the more they can get away with them, doing what, the want, what they want, the more self-seeking they become. It's like a downward spiral. It's like that quote that Lord Acton wrote, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men. The simple truth is all humans tend toward being self-seeking, whether it's politicians or pastors life coaches, celebrities, leaders of of social causes, all humans tend toward being self-seeking. And in the wrong context, where there's not the right checks and balances, in a context where we're given too much power, you can guarantee that that's where we'll end up. Herod, he sets the backdrop for what human kings tend to be like. And it's against this backdrop that we see the veil lifted on Jesus, on Jesus' kingdom. And what we, see that, what we see is that Jesus is not like the self-seeking kings of this world because Jesus is a compassionate king who uses his power to provide for his people. Look at verse 13. When Jesus heard what had happened, John being killed, He withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. Now, we're not told exactly why, but Jesus withdraws. It could be that there was an immediate threat to him and and so he needed to withdraw to plan his next move. It could be that he wanted to grieve the death of John, his cousin. We don't know why, but for whatever reason, his, his intention is really clear. It's to be alone, private, solitary, away from the crowds. But look what happens in verse 13. Hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. They hear that he's gone to be alone. And they must have looked at the boat out there and seen the direction it was heading and just sort of drawn a straight line to where it was going to land. And they run around the lake so that just as Jesus is arriving in his solitary place, getting out of the boat, they all jump out and say, surprise! Now, I don't know about you, but I really don't like these kind of surprises. When I put the kids to bed at night, and then they come down and say, surprise, I'm still awake, I don't like it. That's my time. That's just me with the kids. And I've learned over the years to try and hide my selfishness, not very successfully. But look at how Jesus reacts. Look at how verse 14 reveals his heart. When Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Jesus is not at all like the self-seeking kings of this world. Jesus is the kind of king whose nature, whose heart looks at human weakness, human need. And he doesn't think, how can I exploit this? How can I use this to my advantage? His heart goes out to us and his compassion compels him to be right there with us in our weakness. His body is tired, his heart is grieving, 
His mind perhaps is racing, but his compassion for these people grips him stronger than any of these. Now, this is so different to human leaders. And what's truly startling is that Jesus is a king like this, not from a place of weakness, but actually from a position of power, power that we can barely even comprehend. And that's what we see him demonstrate next. We see Jesus' compassion and his power come together. It's getting to be late in the afternoon at this point. And the disciples, they see the human need, they they see people hungry, and their response is to want to send people away so that they can take care of take care of themselves. Now, it's an understandable response, and I'm sure we'd do the same. But look at what Jesus says in verse 16. They do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. Now, what kind of response is that? Now, if anything, I would have expected him to say, they don't need to go away. I will give them something to eat. But he says, you do it. How can the the disciples possibly give them something to eat? There's 5,000 men, so probably 20,000 people. Why does he put this on the disciples? You know, is this Jesus just toying with them, making them squirm and and feel confused and inadequate like so many leaders do before he comes to the rescue? Well, it's, it's not like that at all. Look at verse 19. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass taking the five loaves and the two fish and looking up to heaven. He gave thanks and broke the loaves. Then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. Do you see who gives them something to eat? The disciples. But how do they do it? Well, it's through the inexplicable, unparalleled power and compassion of Jesus. Jesus is teaching his close followers here a key lesson. He's he's lifting the veil on his manifesto. How will the kingdom of heaven advance in the world? It says Jesus sees the need of his people and powerfully provides for them. And it says Jesus teaches his disciples that their place in his kingdom is feeding his people. But not in their own power, but as they take what Jesus provides to the people. Here we we see the veil lifted. We see it ripped back just for a few moments. Jesus feeds his people in the wilderness. Like God fed the people of Israel in the wilderness over a thousand years earlier. And even the baskets of leftovers are supposed to point us to this. Look, Look at verse 20. They all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 basketfuls of broken pieces that were left over. The 12 basketfuls of, of leftovers make us think of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the point is, Jesus' point is that he provides more than enough for all of God's people. So is Jesus failing in his mission? In chapter 13, he teaches them, no, this is all part of the plan. But in chapter 14, he shows them that the secret of the kingdom of heaven is him. He's a king unlike the self-seeking kings of this world. He's a king of compassion who uses his power to provide for his people. And then finally what we see today is that Jesus 
is the all-powerful king who will not let go of his weak people. See, it's now nighttime at this stage. It's dark, and, and so Jesus makes his disciples leave him behind and head out in the boat while he stays to send the crowd away, fed and healed. And then finally, on his own, like he originally intended, he heads up to the mountain to pray. But meanwhile, the disciples run into trouble. They're being buffeted by the the waves as the wind's against them, and they've been at it all night. And then Jesus does something which is just incredibly strange. Look at verse 25. Shortly before dawn, Jesus went out to them, walking on the lake. Now, this is, is not normal. Even the disciples find this strange, even though they've seen Jesus do so many amazing things. They find it so strange that the only possible explanation that comes to their minds is that they're seeing a ghost and they cry out in fear. No one is thinking that this is anything but completely unexpected and out of this world. But while the disciples are shocked and terrified, Jesus reveals to them what he's doing. He's showing that the secret to the kingdom of heaven is him. This is not some strange party trick or just a kind of an efficient form of transportation. This is Jesus lifting the veil and showing those who are close to him how the kingdom of heaven will advance. It's as they come to him. It's as they see who he is and keep their eyes on who he is, the king, compassionate, yet powerful. The king who is, in fact, all-powerful. Listen to what Jesus reveals to them. In verse 27, he says, Take courage. It is I. Don't be afraid. He literally says, take courage, I am. Which can mean, I am he. But in the context, walking on water, commanding the seas, this is Jesus telling them that he is doing what God alone can do. When God met Moses in the burning bush and and Moses said to God, who should I say is sending me? God said to him, say, I am sends you. Here, Jesus lifts the veil and he says, take courage, I am. Jesus is not a self-seeking king. He's a compassionate king who powerfully provides for his people because he is, in fact, the all-powerful king, the divine king, God, the son who has taken on humanity. Now, at this point, there's, there's another really strange twist because Peter says in verse 28, Lord, if it's you, tell me to come to you on the water. Now, why does he do this? I, I don't think I would ever have thought of saying, oh yeah, I want to come and walk on water too. It, it would never even have crossed my mind. But Peter seems to sense that what Jesus is doing, he's doing for them. Somehow, it's, for their, it's on their behalf. There's something that they need to take hold of in this sign, something they need to participate in. And so he asks, and Jesus tells him to come. And Peter gets out of the boat 
and walks towards Jesus on the water, eyes fixed on Jesus. In that moment, Peter rightly senses that Jesus not only has the power to do this, but he is himself the source of that power, that he can even uphold Peter. It's a moment of of great faith. But look at what happens in verse 30. But when Peter saw the wind, he was afraid and began to sink. Then beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. Peter takes his eyes off Jesus. He fixes his eyes on the danger around him and he starts to sink. But look at what Jesus does in verse 31. Immediately, Jesus reached out his hand and caught him. You of little faith, he said. Why did you doubt? I think sometimes we read this like Jesus is is berating Peter, as if he's angry with Peter. Have you ever read it like that? And we can think, wow, look at the extraordinary faith of Peter, you know, that he could see in Jesus such power that he trusted that Jesus could enable him to walk on water too. And we're not surprised that he doubted once he started. I mean, it's understandable looking at the ways. And so we read this like Jesus is being harsh to him. But that's missing the point. This is not about us. It's not a a manual for how we too can walk on water. It's not a manual for how we too can do amazing things if we only have enough, enough faith. This is about seeing who Jesus really is. This is Jesus throwing out his arm and grabbing Peter with a smile, with love and and commitment and compassion, saying, why did you doubt? And as Peter looked into Jesus' eyes, upheld by his hand, what would he have been thinking? Yeah, why did I doubt? In the face of the, the wind and the waves and the water, of course he would doubt, but in the grasp of the all-powerful king who will not let him sink there's no good reason to doubt and it's here that we see what they needed to take hold of in these events this moment is Jesus burning into their memories into their hearts that he is the all-powerful king the son of God God the son he will advance his kingdom He will advance it through the frail and the weak, through people who look to him. He gives us every reason to trust him and no reason to doubt him because he will never let us sink. And as they climb into the boat and the wind stops, they get it. They finally get it. At least in that moment, they take hold of who he is. Look at verse 33. Then those who were in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly you are the Son of God. They see that Jesus alone is a king worth worshipping. What about us? Do you see what they're seeing here? Some of us today, we haven't seen this yet. You know, Some of us have never really given Jesus that much thought. And some of us have given him a, a lot of thought but we've never really given him the central place in our lives. We might be here week after week, but we've never really taken hold of the fact that life is all about Jesus. Now, if that's you, what is God saying to you here in Matthew? 
What God is saying to you is that Jesus is the king you need. His kingdom is advancing, whether we see it or not. All other kings and leaders will let you down. Even if you live as if you're your own king, you will let yourself down. All other things that you could live for, even good things, even great things, they will let you down. They are letting you down. If you're not worshipping Jesus alone, you are worshipping something. It could be work, pleasure, even family. But whatever it is, it will let you down. Jesus alone is a king worth worshipping. He is the king you need. That's what God is saying to you here, what Jesus is demonstrating to you here in Matthew's Gospel. And so what I want to say to you is, what are you going to do about that? Are you ready to make all of your life all about Jesus? As a church, that's, that's absolutely what we're on about. We want every Sunday to be a reminder that all of life is all about Jesus. We want to help each and every one of us get this and hold on to this and live this. If you feel like you need help to figure out what that looks like for your life, please feel free to come and chat to me anytime. But for others of us, we do see this and, and we see it powerfully. We see clearly that, that Jesus alone is the king worth worshipping. And so we're kind of more like Peter in the boat. We see who Jesus is. We see that we can trust him. And it's like we're ready to step out amidst the wind and the waves of life into the unknown. We're ready to risk it all and, and follow Jesus anywhere. Now, if that's you, what is God saying to you here in Matthew's Gospel? Well, what God is saying to you is still, Jesus is the king you need. It's very easy to step down out of the boat in faith and then moments later to slip up in pride or in fear. If you see exactly who Jesus is, exactly the place that he should have in your life, your challenge is, is to keep that clarity as you keep your eyes on him. Because it's so easy to lose sight of who Jesus is. And in some ways, the stronger our faith, the more at risk we are for taking it for granted. How often do we see that? And taking our eyes off Jesus. First, we think, wow, look at what I can do. And then as we start sinking, we think, wow, what's going wrong? Why has Jesus let me down? And actually, that describes how some of us are feeling right now. Do you feel like you're sinking? Do you feel like in the past you saw things so clearly? In the past, the wind and waves of life didn't worry you. You saw exactly who Jesus is more powerfully than you saw the difficulties and the challenges of following him. But now you feel the weight and the worries of life bringing you down. Do you feel like no matter what, no matter how hard you try, you can't seem to feel the confidence and, and the peace that you once took for granted following Jesus? Well, if that's you, what is God saying to you in Matthew here? What God is saying to you is that yet again, Jesus is the king you need. 
You know, the one good thing about feeling like you're sinking is that it actually forces you to lift your eyes from the water and to see that Jesus is right there in front of you. Just in front of you. Arm outstretched, saying, Why did you doubt? Not with anger in his eyes, but with compassion. He holds out his hand to you. And it's not that the waves will go away. Sometimes it's not even that the fear of the waves will go away. But when you see yet again that Jesus is a king unlike all others, a king of compassion and power, a king all-powerful, who alone is worth worshipping, you're seeing that Jesus is the king you need and he's not going to let you sink. Let's pray. Father, we just stand amazed at who you have revealed yourself to be through Jesus, your son. Father, we thank you that Jesus is exactly the kind of king we need, a king who alone is worth worshipping. Father, we are drawn to so many other things to live for all sorts of things and yet help us to see again and to keep on seeing that only Jesus will satisfy, that his kingdom is eternal, that it's growing, that we can be a part of it as we come close to him. Lord, help us to do that, to fix our eyes on him and him alone. We pray in his name. Amen.